Aloha, everyone. I'm your host, Christina Laney-Mitri, and welcome to Smart Living Hawaii's podcast, where we discuss smart homes and technology, sustainability, healthy lifestyles, and smart business. Today, we'll be continuing our Sustainable Leaders series and have a talk story with Herb Lee Jr., the president and CEO of Pacific American Foundation. Aloha, Herb. Thank you for coming. Aloha. Thank you, Christina, for having me. Yeah, so before we begin, I always like to share a little bit on our speaker. And today, a little bit about Herb Lee Jr. He has been the executive director of the Pacific American Foundation since 2005. And in 2018, he was appointed president and CEO. And Herb is a native Hawaiian that has led multiple highly successful youth leadership programs, career planning and development programs, STEM education, and culture-based curriculums projects, including the award-winning um, Kahe, sorry if I butchered this, Kahea Local and I, Aloha Aina projects. His program has trained over 5,000 teachers statewide in over 150 schools and benefited over 100,000 plus students and family, families, and that's just for the fish pond, right? And the American, the Pacific American Foundation has been recognized as one of the leading nonprofits in the development and training of rigorous culture-based education programs for both Native Hawaiians and non-Hawaiian students. He has earned degrees in psychology, political science, and a graduate degree in public administration from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He has been on numerous boards and community groups over the years, and he's won many coveted awards for his passionate contributions to Hawaii. So, if no further ado, I want to continue <laughs> and jump in. And so, Herb, let's begin. I usually like to start with your background and how you grew up, where you grew up. Well, uh, we're currently in Kaneohe uh, doing this interview, and I grew up about a mile from here uh, in Kaneohe um, and uh, went to educated in Hawaii, uh, both public school and private schools, and uh, all the way up to the University of Hawaii Manoa, and I'm very proud of that. And uh, so I, I have a, uh, a passion for everything Hawaiian and especially for uh, education and trying to give uh, kids and students and families the opportunities uh, that maybe they, they wouldn't normally have and have choices, especially for post-secondary education opportunities. Awesome. So uh, what did you do growing up that led you into this sector, I guess? Or was it your family? Was it well, passed down to you? you know, I grew up at a time, uh, and I... I entered college in 1972 at a time uh, where the Hawaiian, Hawaiian Renaissance was at a peak. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I grew up in a, my, my grandmother was the last in our family to speak Hawaiian, to do everything Hawaiian. And unfortunately, you know, she passed away when I was only 10 years old. But, you know, she had ingrained in my parents that uh, education was very important. And so uh, the pursuit of education was uh, in, in, in the Western world was, you know, was paramount to being successful in life. And so um, at that time, there was a thirst for me to learn, uh, not only learn Western ways, but also to really be more grounded in my culture, in Hawaiian culture. 
and uh, Hawaiian culture through music and hula and things were undergoing a fabulous renaissance. And I just got sucked into everything Hawaiian uh, at the University of Hawaii, including paddling, music, hula, dance, you know, everything, uh, chanting. And, and I just learned all of that and even Hawaiian language. Uh, and I'm still, I still feel that I'm a Hamana or a student today. I'm still learning. Uh, but it's been a wonderful experience that I've been able to incorporate in everything that I do in my, in my professional life. So I usually ask what you do for fun. So I know you've already mentioned probably a lot of that. Well, what are, what are things you like to do for fun? Well, you know, I, I kind of ended up working my way through college playing music, believe it or not. And um, I thought, well, after I graduated, that'll be it. You know, it was uh, fun. But, you know, I um, it, it has continued in my life, and I've, I really enjoy that. And I'm at the point now where I've been able to record a number of albums, oh. um, win a Nahoku Award, uh, and I, I like to compose music now, especially around the things and experiences and the fish ponds. Uh, that we've been uh, honored to be able to help restore and things like that. So I really enjoyed that, incorporating music into everything that, that I do. Wow. So that's why, is that why you have the concert series? Well, yeah. Them? You know, after 18 years of restoring the pond, I felt that it was time for us to incorporate <laughs> not just the hard work, but actually, you know, have some fun too. And so this past weekend, we just uh, had our sixth, uh, we call it, Kani Kapila Omahina, and these are full moon concerts. Uh, that was actually the seed of the idea came from uh, Danny Akaka Jr. That's been doing it for many years uh, at uh, on the Kona side uh, at Manalani Bay Hotel, the Eva Parker Wood site. And uh, he said, Herb, you guys got to do a full moon concert at your pond, you know, on Oahu. And uh, so a couple of years ago, we started, and it's been fabulous. Awesome. I'm sorry I missed that, but I'm going to have to come There'll be more. There'll be more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so uh, moving on, I heard that you just had your 31st anniversary. Yes, my 31st wedding anniversary. So the love of my life, her name is Wendy. Uh, We just celebrated our, on the 28th, our 31st wedding anniversary and uh, went into the ocean. Uh, and, you know, sometimes you just have to do that, you know, because we get so caught up in the, the computers and the phones and the office work and running from here to there. And sometimes you just have to take a time out and go back into the ocean, go back in nature, get rejuvenated. And fortunately, we, we had a few days to do that uh, on the North Shore. Well, congratulations. Family? Do you have family? Kids? Yes. I have one daughter and uh, I'm proud that she's going to be 24 years old soon. In about a couple of days, and uh, she's uh, graduated from college on the mainland, and she's currently lives in, outside of Portland, Oregon. Okay. And she's um, a certified teacher in both Oregon and in Hawaii uh, elementary ed, and we're very, very proud of her. Is she coming home? I I hope she's coming home. <laughs> I think she's still not over, uh, you know, just living her own life mm-hmm. away from us and being independent uh, in a great state. We love Oregon and uh, being around, you know, friends that she's made through her college career and life. Awesome. I know I said when I went to college, I'm never coming home and here I am. I'm back. <laughs> I wanted to come home, but I wanted to be on her terms. Of course. And I think it, it often happens. If you can find a career here, I think you, you come back to to your life, you know, back home. Anyhow, moving on, let's get to the nuts and bolts of this podcast. So 
Let's talk about Pacific American Foundation because it doesn't really explain too much about what you do in the title of that name. So if you can explain a little bit more about your mission and how it started, that'll be great. Sure. Uh, we actually have two entities. We have Pacific American Foundation, which was incorporated in 1993 in Virginia. And our founder, uh, and he still lives there, is a native Hawaiian, graduate from Kamehameha Schools. And when he retired from the military, uh, he had a vision to start the Pacific American Foundation to help pave the way for future Pacific Americans, including uh, Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders that have a unique uh, experience and a lifestyle in the Pacific, uh, but are also part of the United States. And uh, so he formed uh, Pacific American Foundation in 1993, and then um, we formed uh, Pacific American Foundation Hawaii in 215 um, as, a, as a Hawaii incorporated entity so that we would have uh, maximum flexibility in terms of access to um, different opportunities uh, throughout the country and locally. Okay, and what... What is your mission or what do you Our overarching mission is, is really simple and it's broad and it's intended to be that way. It's to improve the lives of Pacific Americans wherever they may be. So we are a national nonprofit organization. We have, we have developed programs that reach out to Pacific Americans, Pacific Islanders that uh, have maybe lived all of their lives in different states on the mainland uh, or from the Pacific or from, or from Hawaii. And uh, so we, we've had we've developed leadership training programs to kind of uh, reconnect them to to home, so to speak, in the Pacific, and to hopefully impart knowledge from both an indigenous perspective as well as a Western perspective in how they live and navigate their lives wherever they may be. Well, that's uh, I guess here in Hawaii. What I guess we can talk about the different programs now, and sure. I think the number one. Uh, project that you've been working on for, is it 25 years now, yes. has been the fish pond. So could you elaborate more on that? Sure. In 1995, I was able to start my own nonprofit called the Waikoloa Local Fish Pond Preservation Society. And we, I had that nonprofit for 20 years. And then um, we disbanded that nonprofit. And we, at that point in time, we had acquired the Waikoloa Local Fish Pond using a federal grant, and we put the, the title of the pond under Pacific American Foundation Hawaii. Um, <clears throat> and so we now have, um, so we've been restoring Waikoloa Local uh, Fish Pond for about 25 years now. She is a, approximately 400 years old. She's about uh, 12 acres in size, relatively small by fish pond standards, but I think um, it has been a fabulous journey in terms of not only the restoration, revitalization, and preservation of a resource that is on the verge of vanishing in our lifetime, but also a catalyst for how we educate our children and how we pass on knowledge to our children, no matter they be in the public school system, private schools, charter schools, and even in post-secondary college uh, students. Uh, so we've developed education programs and leadership training programs, mentoring programs, stewardship programs for that whole cadre of, of next generation of learners. Mm -hmm. I see that happening in this in this capacity, but I'm also starting to see it happening on land at the farm. 
parts and everything too. So it's very, it's very neat to see. Some of it is, you know, culture based and going back to the Hawaiian culture, but a, a lot of it too is just growing on in Hawaii, and it's it's um it's really good to see that it's starting up. So we had a, you know, to tell you the truth, when we started this, we knew we had to do it, but we didn't know exactly. Nobody gave us a plan, right. you know, or there was a recipe or anything on, on how to do it. So we had to figure everything out ourselves. Um, and something really remarkable happened that was very organic. We got a call from a, a teacher from Castle High School. And uh, one day, this is about the third year that we're into the restoration of the pond in the 90s. And she said, hey, I heard what you guys are doing. And I'm trying to teach, you know, these students, the 11th and 12th graders. They're mostly Native Hawaiian kids that science. And I'm not reaching them in the classroom. Can I bring them down to your pond? And maybe we can introduce them to a different way of learning science. And I said, sure. And then I contacted my friend, Dr. Clyde Tamaru from the University of YC grant, and uh, we put together a little ad hoc curriculum. And nine months later, we saw this amazing transformation in these kids. And we knew that at that point, that our part of our destiny and our journey in the restoration of the pond was not necessarily only focused on the physical restoration, but to be able to impart that knowledge as part of the mainstream education system in Hawaii. And it just took off from there. So... Could you elaborate more on what I guess they get from it? Because it's not just science. I mean, what you're getting and what I guess more of a well-rounded education. Yeah. So this is again like the late 1990s, right? And so in those days, when we when people talked in education, when people talked about culture-based education, um, a lot of people still didn't know what that meant, or they they thought that if you incorporate culture into the four core areas of science, math, language, arts, and social studies, that <clears throat> it, it, you know, you're really, uh, it's not going to be as rigorous as everybody was hoping to be. And that was also at a time when, when the country was moving towards a more standards-based education. Up until that time, you know, we kind of had our own standards in Hawaii, but we didn't really follow any kind of national standards. So 2001, then these national standards start coming out and being implemented throughout the country. And in those days, it was called No Child Left Behind. And so as we were developing the curriculum and we're getting grants to develop culture-based education in the context of fish ponds and eventually the Ahupua'a and eventually islands and, and everything that's Hawaii-based, uh, we were able to develop lesson plans that uh, focused on all of those core areas, science, English, uh, through the Mo'olelo, through the stories of Hawaii, and, and really trying to bridge indigenous wisdom with modern technology and science and things like that. And so I believe that, you know, that was sort of the breakthrough for us in terms of addressing a need in the country and, and locally and, and infusing uh, more rigorously um, uh, the indigenous knowledge and wisdom, you know, that we were uh, starting to uh, not only research and implement, but also collect and expand and innovate. Yeah. Well, now that you explained a little bit more about what you cover in, in your program, um, and well, actually multiple programs, you kind of have this overarching 
thing to, to every every program that you have. Um, what does the future hold for the next 25 years since you've kind of laid the foundation, I think, for a lot of the cultural you know, education for the first 25 years? So for the next 25 years, where do you see things unfolding? So, you know, the Waikoloa Local Fish Pond has become the pico or the center of our organization now. Everything that we do emanates from that people, education, stewardship, uh, connection to place. Um, and so as we have kind of reflected on our first 25 years of the restoration process and looking forward to the next 25 years, we are now at a place in the physical restoration of the pond where we're now moving into the propagation phase and, you know, taking out all of the invasives and things like that. And really, no fish pond that's currently in Hawaii that remains. And historically, we've been able to document that there were about 488 of these ponds that were built uh, from 800 years ago in the eight major Hawaiian islands. Today, as we speak, there are probably less than 15 to 10% of these ponds that remain. So, Unfortunately, uh, the Hawaiian fish pond is on the verge of vanishing in our generation. And it's imperative that we hold on to these places because I believe that they, they still contain the indigenous knowledge and wisdom for us to get back to a place of being able to be more sustainable for the people that live in Hawaii. So food sustainability, propagation of fish, uh, native seaweed, and all those things that are part of this very vibrant ecosystem that our ancestors were really great managers of, to hopefully sort of rediscover and repopulate so some of those things that um, we've kind of lost a connection to. And, you know, as part of the entire ecology of Hawaii, you know, it is a very critical aspect of the formula for, I think, long-term sustainability in an island community isolated, still isolated physically from, you know, uh, probably one of the most isolated, you know, land masses on the planet. Um, and, you know, given, you know, that we live in a global society today, um, I think, I believe that we have something very important to not only offer the people of Hawaii in terms of being more self-sustainable, but also maybe something to offer the world in terms of also being more cognizant and, and better connected to to places uh, because the, the Aina or the Aina feeds us and the, the world, the, the, the world's oceans are dis in distress and the world's lands are in distress. And we need to get back to that understanding of what does it really take to Aloha Aina and understand our connectedness to place so that it can sustain us. So we have to flip that mindset and, and turn that into something that even our young kids can grow up understanding that this is critical to their future livelihood. Yeah, and I think I think some people feel that we may not be able to get there, but you're an example of if you were raised this way, you know, and taught these things growing up, that it made such a big impact on your life that it became your passion to, to pass that torch down. We just, I feel, don't have enough people like you at this point in time to where we can, you know, get there. So we have to teach, you know, you, we have to start with the younger generation. So when I met Herb, we met at the East meets West conference, which was hosted by blue startups where entrepreneurs and investors meet across the Pacific annually. 
Herb was a panelist for the Visions from Hawaii's Indigenous Innovation Panel, and it was a very interesting group of about six of you, um, <clears throat> where you know the tech world and venture capitalists have are now having sustainability as the forefront of this conference, which is pretty interesting. So, due to Hawaii's sustainable initiatives, um, we're becoming a leader in sustainability, and I think. Um, you know, across the nation, but also now globally because of, of what we're doing and to also see that we were sustainable at one point, you know, back in time. And we were really like a closed system, you know, it was like a circular economy within our own right. here. We didn't need to have Matson come <laughs> with all the, you know, shipping everything in. Um, and there was a lot of people here at that time. I mean, um, so that's that's what I mean. I think you're right. We are gonna we are being looked at, you know, for what we're doing, and if we can take the stuff that we've done in the past and merge it with, you know, the innovation of today, which is I kind of think where East meets West conference is really going with. Um, I think that's that's gonna be um, a big part of you know our future, and so that's why I really want wanted to have you here. Um, and talk about some of the hurdles, you know, and some of the challenges that we're facing and how to get that going and how to make that happen. So I did want to talk, I think, about uh, your HA Breath program that you have in the school system. So if you can explain that and how that's going to be bridging some of these gaps for the Keiki. So in uh, 2015, 2014, 2015, I was approached by Cheryl Kawahane Lupe Nui, who was a, a member of the Board of Edu Education at the time. And she wanted to assemble a group of people that could help um, develop some kind of guidance document that was really Hawaiian values based. And at first, uh, we looked at uh, what the DOE at the time called these general learner outcomes. These are the outcomes that we wanted to see in students when they graduated. What do we want these students to look like when they graduated? What we were looking at, <clears throat> and with the group that Cheryl had assembled, we were looking at Hawaii has something very unique to offer in, in this education system. And we wanted that to be a reflection of when they graduate as well. What do we want our graduates to look like? Yes, we want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to be problem solvers. We want them to be collaborators. But we also want them to be firmly planted into the culture of Hawaii, whether they're Hawaiian or not, because we have we come from uh, a very rich culture uh, where scientists now um, uh, share that, you know, the Hawaiians were one of the greatest land managers on the planet because we were living in isolation for many years before Western contact. And there are those practices that are still so important and prevalent living in an island community that is very unique in the world. Um, and how do we get back to that? So <clears throat> we looked at a lot of other indigenous ways of knowing throughout the world and, um, and it, and it just all kind of hit us. Um, and the, the result of it was Nahupena'ao, uh, which means uh, the results of knowledge. Uh, and the acronym, uh, the, and the short acronym is HA. <clears throat> HA in Hawaiian is uh, the word for breath. And the mana'o that came uh, 
from uh, Cheryl and Cully and others in the committee uh, were <clears throat> outlining very simply uh, what the components of breath means to living in Hawaii, going through an education system that is founded on these really wonderful Hawaiian values and how we wanted to see that be emulated <clears throat> in all of the schools in Hawaii. It wasn't meant to be a prescriptive document. It was meant to be a sort of a guideline so that people could take it as a seed and, and nurture it and make it their own. Because as we know, each school, each community kind of has their own culture of how they do things. And we wanted to respect that. But at the same time, we wanted to uh, be able to build bridges of, of commonality that were that represented the best of who we were as a people. Uh, and that we have a reciprocal kuleana, whether, again, we're Hawaiian or not, being Living in Hawaii, we have a kuleana or a responsibility to take care of the places in which we live so that it, continue, it can continue to sustain us. We call that aloha aina. So very briefly, it's, uh, when we spell out the word breath, it's a sense of understanding, a sense of belonging. That's the first word. Understanding a sense of responsibility. That's the R. Understanding that there is a um, threshold for excellence in everything that we do. That's the E. Uh, the A is understanding that the word aloha is so universal and so deep in Manao uh, that I'm still learning about uh, the depths of aloha. The T is a total well-being, and that that refers to our our health, both physically and spiritually. And then the, the last uh, letter, H, refers to understanding that there is a sense, when you put all of these things together, they uniquely make... Uh, this sense of Hawaii that is truly uh, profound and uh, something to be proud of that is reflective of all of us living here on the islands. So if we can impart those kinds of ideals and values uh, in how we educate our people, and it's, this is not just for students, but it's for teachers, it's for family, it's for everybody that's part of the learning experience that we have in students, all the people that contribute to that learning then we will be in a better place. And hopefully in the future, as these children grow up, they will understand their stewardship responsibility and their connection to place and hopefully make it better than when we give it to them. Yeah. I think society as a whole in maybe America or some, you know, a lot of times it, it's, it's moved into convenience and um, self-seeking a lot, you know, survival of the fittest, take care of yourself, your immediate hub, you know, and, and, and then, you know, kind of more of like a power level, you know, and it's, it's broken down this kind of idea of like the greater good, you know, and doing things as a whole for everybody because it's the right thing to do. Right. And I, I just, I really think that this is so important um, for Hawaii to be self-sustainable again, because without, you know, it, to be sustainable, you're going to need to collaborate. You're going to need to work with people and you can't do it on your own. Like, it's just not possible. <laughs> it's just not possible. So whether you like it or not, you're going to have to work with your neighbors, whether you like them or not, you're going to have to work with everybody in order to, you know, and the Hawaiian culture was that like certain people had different 
chores and tasks and, and in order and gifts. Yeah, right. And everybody did what they needed to do and their share and their part in order for the whole to work together versus one person doing everything for themselves and only themselves and hopefully, you know, not fending for, yeah. you know, so it's, it's just a, it's a community collaborative that I see um, the need for and, and Hawaii was like that. And I still feel it. It's just, I see it drifting unless we bring it back. So, I mean, that's why um, the culture side to, you know, the sustainable initiative that, is in place. It's it's one of the five overarching you know um, sectors that Hawaii has put as important. So um, I'm glad that it's there, and I'm glad that there's not just four. And I'm glad that culture is a part of it, and that it's recognized because without it, I, I don't think that we would really be able to accomplish this goal. You know, so I really I applaud you for all that you're doing and your team is doing because at the end of the day education with our kids. I mean, I have a nine-year-old and she, I don't know if you know if it's being taught in her school, um, but because I know you don't necessarily reach every school at this point, but hopefully it's something, I mean, that I will instill, but that they, that it'll just be mandated. Um, yeah, uh, something that we have to take uh, personal responsibility for. We cannot abdicate that responsibility to just the education system. Mm -hmm. We have to live it every day. And that is the only thing that I think is going to change the mindset. Because we're dealing with institutions, right? But we're also dealing with our own mindset. And one of the profound things, you know, that we experienced very early on in the restoration of the pond, when I asked those first kids, where do you think food comes from? And you know what the immediate answer was? The, the store. store. <laughs> so of course. if we just use, you know, if we understand the concept of aloha, you know, it's a very simple but very profound concept. How do we love the land? And the operative word in Aina is I, which is food. So if we just focus on the concept of food and we understand how disconnected we have become from actually growing our own food to sustain ourselves, we have basically abdicated all of our food, you know, to stores and restaurants and other people do that part. And they're not involved in the process of actually growing food anymore and appreciating the value of food and appreciating all of the hard work and all of the sharing of aloha with other people that it takes to feed 1.4 million people in Hawaii, for example, right? We've lost that connection. And so I think people are now desperate now that they're seeing the consequence of losing that connection and having all these other factors put into our food that we don't want anymore, the chemicals, the herbicides, the pesticides, whatever it is. And yes, you know, and I'm not disparaging technology or anything like that because we got to move forward. But at the same time, we got to understand the value of these very simple things in our life that we basically abdicated. And we have to have an awareness and an understanding of how we connect to these things and how we can continue to propagate. So in the next 25 years for us, Although we are focused on propagating fish physically in the pond, we really are focusing on really trying to change that mindset so that people have a deeper understanding of what aloha aina means. And more importantly, how to malama aina, how to take care of the land. Because we believe in our experiences uh, that 
people will never, malama will never take care of the, the place unless they have aloha for it. That's the most important thing. And there's a whole nother mana'o that, you know, that I've experienced personally about where does that aloha come from, right? That aloha starts from within inside of you. And from a spiritual standpoint, you know, to me, that comes from a kua. And so if we can understand those links, we can understand this shared kuleana and responsibility for aloha aina, then we can be a better place. We can be at a place where these are the types of graduates we want to see when they graduate from high school and then take their gifts and talents and that foundation into the world and make it better. Yeah. And I know that it's not all the responsibility of a school to do it. Right. But the fact that, you know, we do have families that are broken, you know, maybe they're not able to get this type of education or this kind of support at home, having it instilled in the schools along with, you know, families really adopting this is what I feel is going to, you know, help the people that need the extra support. You know, when I worked in South Central in L.A., that's that's basically what I worked with the Salvation Army. So we worked with the kids in after school programs. And I know that you guys have after school program um, um, agendas as well. Um, and that was the way that we connected with a lot of them because they didn't they weren't getting this from home. And even here in Hawaii now, when I, you know, serve with the kids in, in Waipahu, at, you know, at, they come every other Saturday. Um, I, I know that they're probably not getting this this type of learning from their home base um, because we're, we're just teaching them to, you know, this is their park, pick up the trash, you know, it's on the ground. We give them snacks and they just drop it on the ground. And just the idea doesn't even, there's no connection at this point, you know, and someone comes and cleans up their park every so often. And then the state workers or whatever. And so then they just, they don't, they don't. Yeah. So that whole disconnect is like, I, I know that they're only going to get that from us a lot of times or the school that they're going to. Right. So that's why I, I believe it's really important. So even those, every kid is, has the opportunity to, to find this and have it internally for themselves, right. you know? So um, that's why I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, a couple of things that I want to move into since we are on sustainability and you know, I had the opportunity of you giving me a tour of your of your fish pond was climate change um, that that kind of came up. And I know that climate change is such a huge buzzword and, you know, topic right now. Um, it is inevitable that there is change in our climate and everything. And, you know, I would say that you guys over the past 25 years and even from before have have seen these, could you kind of explain some, some things, you know, environmental wise that's, that sure. you've seen? You know, uh, about five or six years ago, we had an opportunity to partner with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and, uh, uh, and the Pacific Tsunami Museum. And the idea was to develop a curriculum uh, that affected both of us in the Pacific. And it started to focus on tsunami inundation because of sea level rise. And then it got into sea level rise and global climate change as we kind of delved into it. So we have been able to actually develop curriculum with those two partners uh, to inform our students about global climate change, sea level rise and tsunamis and the consequence of those things. 
Uh, what we have personally experienced at the pond has been, over the last 25 years, has been uh, a lot of changes. We become much more keen in our observation of the changes in the ecology and weather and the environment. The pond is situated right in between two freshwater streams that empty all of the fresh water from the Kaneohe from the mountain to the sea into Kaneohe Bay, which is one of the largest embayments in the Pacific. So we have, uh, the, to me, the ponds have become almost like a litmus test to determine the health of the land and the Oahu. And so we have been analyzing, using technology to analyze uh, water chemistry, sediment chemistry, look at the vertebrates and the invertebrates. We have partnered with the Smithsonian Institute uh, in a 30-year study to understand better the biodiversity of Kaneohe Bay and the impacts of that. And in 2017, we experienced the very first king tides at our pond as well. Now, a lot of people think that king tides is just a matter of water rising. Um, and uh, right now, we're entering the summer months uh, in 2019. And we're kind of bracing because the summer months are usually the time when we have the highest tides. And that's usually, if there is a king tide that will be happening, then it'll be even more pronounced. What people don't realize is that in addition to water rising, it is also bringing in a whole different uh, colonies of microorganisms uh, into the environment. And it's changing the formulas in terms of how we produce uh, native limu and how we grow fish and things like that. So it's changing, it's ever changing the ecology of Hawaii as well. So we have to be vigilant and we have to be on top of it. We have to kind of figure out how do we, in our quest to become more food sustainable and, and, and sort of rediscover these formulas in terms of how to grow uh, fish that we need to survive with, um, the ecology and the environment is changing dynamically uh, a lot, a lot more than it has been. So we have to pay more attention. And this is not something new to our ancestors. Our, our, our Native Hawaiian ancestors, you know, saw changes. You know, they were great adapters uh, to the environment and to the changing ecologies, weather changes and things like that. So we're trying to be more observant, more keen, uh, more aware, utilizing both contemporary technology and science along with traditional wisdom to try to figure out and problem solve and how we grow native lemurs again. Native lemurs in the, in our pond and in Kaneohe Bay is almost non-existent, but it is still the preferred diet according to our, our science friends at uh, Boko Oloi, Coconut Island, that is, it is still the preferred diet of most of the vertebrates in Kaneohe Bay. Uh, so we believe that in this time, um, where if we can sort of repopulate the bay and the pond with native limu, that we can bring more of the fish back. You know, and that's just one part of the formula for long-term sustainability. So you were telling me about the limu or the seaweed that was, um, what is it, invasive? Yeah, we had, we for, for the first, up until 2016, from 1995 to 2016, we were inundated, as well as the bay, with an invasive limu uh, that's commonly referred to as the gorilla oko, or the scientific name is the Gracilaria salicornia. And it was very prolific. It grows maybe two to three times faster than the native. So it basically chokes out a lot of the native species. 
And we were pulling out of our pond, just as an example, up to a hundred tons of this seaweed uh, every year, and trying to and 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 recycling it because it is uh, has high nitrogen, and we were recycling it with taro farmers that were using it to as sort of like uh, a fertilizer for the taros uh, for the taro farmers on the Rubik's side mostly. Uh, and then in 2016, when we experienced one of the highest recorded temperatures in the ocean went up like another degree. All of a sudden, we called our friends uh, in the science community and said, hey, what's going on? Uh, within a three-month period, three, four-month period, the Gracilaria salicornia, the gorilla ogo, basically 95% of it disappeared, and both in the bay and the pond. And it was primarily due to uh, changes in the ecology, but I think... A lot of it had to do with a temperature change increase as well. Yeah, so climate change, I know for some people can, or some areas can be really bad. Yes. But I also know that they're able to grow in Canada now, right? You know, I mean, when you start looking, I'm not right. saying let's keep doing this, but it is actually in certain areas where they weren't able to grow, they can grow. Or yeah. for this situation, it actually killed off invasive species. Yeah, so we saw it as sort of like a window of opportunity for us to reintroduce natively that wouldn't have to compete with the Grassonaria cellophane. So, it, and that's an interesting thing too, is that it didn't kill off the, um, that temperature difference didn't, the, 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 um, the native, native native right. could stay. So we were trying to find, you know, what is the appropriate uh, conditions uh, for growing native Lemo again within the context of the pond and hopefully be able to extrapolate some of that knowledge to be able to maybe outplant in the pod as well as in the bay someday. And I think we're not the only ones doing that. Many other people are doing that. We, we kind of have opportunities to kind of dialogue with a lot of different people that are doing it to try to figure out how we can bring it back because I think that is one of the key ingredients to repopulating the Bay Shore waters. Already. So when you get the limu all growing, and then, you know, the pond is, because right now you were clearing out, right, a lot yeah. of the pond yeah. itself that had... Um, Mangrove and sediment, accumulating sediment of over 150 years, um, and of that invasive, you know, uh, ogle. Now we're getting to a point of really trying to figure out how we can uh, use the pond as a laboratory to grow fish again and limo again as our ancestors had originally built it. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there have been moderate successes in some other ponds, but nobody has really been able to grow fish as they were originally intended, uh, you know, going back to the days of our ancestors. So uh, we, live in a, we live in a different time, you know. In those days, there were more of an agrarian sort of an economy. Today, we live more in a market economy, so it's a... It's a different thing. Uh, so we have to use all of our wit set as well as the indigenous wisdom to figure out how we can bring these ponds back and hopefully be a catalyst for the nearshore fisheries in Hawaii, which are pretty much, you know, fished out. Yeah. If you talk to most fishermen. Yeah. So um, who are some of, I guess, your partners over the years and people that are organizations that you work with on a regular basis? with a lot of these programs? Well, the University of Hawaii, definitely uh, the Sea Grant College, uh, College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources. 
Uh, we've worked very closely with EPA over the years at the federal level. NOAA, NOAA has been a fabulous supporter of a lot of our education stewardship training programs. We have our Knowledge Studies program, which is an acronym for Nature Activities and Learning and Understanding that works primarily with uh, adjudicated kids and, and kids that need a different way of learning outside of the classroom. With our WIRED project, which is Watershed Investigations for Research, Education, and Design. Um, and we have um, Smithsonian Institute. Uh, we have a long-term agreement with them. Of course, the Department of Education, uh, Kamehameha Schools, uh, Office of Hawaiian Affairs, the Castle Foundation has been a huge supporter, as well as the Manami Foundation, which are two foundations located on the Windward side. They have big, been big supporters of us. We've also gotten funds over the years from national philanthropic organizations that I've developed relationships with, like the Kellogg Foundation um, and uh, Asian Pacific Islander uh, American Health Forum on the West Coast, uh, who is a sort of an intermediary funder to other national funders uh, throughout the country. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Kellogg, Coulter Foundation, and others. Wow. Uh, so over the years, you have written a lot of grants. Yes. So, and I and that's your that's one of your kind of big things you do for the organization, right? Well, you know, our our nonprofit is primarily grant funded, so we kind of live and die by uh, our ability to uh, write grants and not just write grants, but write grants uh, that really fulfill a niche in, say, uh, in, in, in how we uh, approach a problem that's going on either in the education system or in, you know, cultural stewardship and things like that, and how we can figure out how to fill these pukas, so to speak, or these gaps, um, and like, like culture-based education, project-based education, place-based education, how we can fill these gaps based on the needs of, of the students, um, not all of them are going to be those kind of gifted and learners in a regular classroom. Uh, so we have developed, you know, very robust programs to teach them in different ways. So we look at a lot of different partnerships and we look at a lot of different funding sources and we've been very successful. Uh, it has been a very difficult journey because not all knowledge learned in one school. Um, each grant funder is different and they have different, you know, priorities and but we've been very blessed in terms of trying to leverage our relationships and our success over the last 25 years in trying to leverage our success to create even more opportunities for success and reaching more students and more people with the kind of uh, uh, results that we've been able to get at the pond or through our trainings and career planning and development processes and things like that. Well, it's amazing that you know it all started at restoring a fish pond. Yes, so it really comes back to the people, right? That's where it all kind of started, and so now looking 25 years into the future, it, it it's even more profound and even more pronounced that we have to come back and protect it. And now that we own it, now that we've been able to acquire it, and we don't have the threats of other people wanting to take it away from us. Uh, or to do other kind of developmental projects. Yeah, we are fully committed. It has totally changed how we think about it and how we make decisions because now we're thinking about making decisions that are truly seven generations and beyond 
in terms of making sure that this pond will continue to exist for another 400 years and how it can continue to be a growing catalyst in the community for transformation and the kind of transformation that we want to see that is Pono for our community, for our people, for every generation of student to come. Well, I think that's a, a nice closure to our <laughs> conversation today. So thank you so much for wrapping it up with that so eloquently. Um, thanks for coming and speaking with me. And um, I guess that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at www.smartlivinghi.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at smart underscore living underscore Hawaii and like us on Facebook. Mahalo. And until next time, live smart. Aloha.